Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Welcome to Talking Movies. Doug, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you, John. Did you know that this is show number eight, and eight in numerology, in case you didn't know it, means money. Now, I don't know if our guest has a lot of that, but he has helped make a bunch of it for bunches of very famous directors and producers and writers and studios. Uh, Most people haven't even heard of them. But everyone in the movie-making business not only knows of them, but they, are, they hire them. He is the leading audience researcher for producers, directors, and writers and actors in the entire business. What happens if they make a movie, they turn it over to him, he screens it for a private audience, and then he makes suggestions on how to improve the movie and therefore improve their product and the profits. And he has told a lot of these amazing stories and his stories in this book with the unusual title, Audienceology. And now here he is in person, Kevin Getz, to tell us his story and some of those. Kevin, 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 how are you and where are you? You look terrific. <laughs> Thank you, John. Thank you, John. You look great. I am in, uh, I live in Beverly Hills in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles and uh, I'm here in my, um, in my library. Well, as a result of the fabulous work you've done for others and yourself, you deserve to be living in Beverly Hills. <laughs> and I have in front of me your book. Wow. Uh, Audienceology, How Moviegoers Shape the Films We Love. I got to tell you something, Kevin. In the decades and decades that I have interviewed authors, I have read every one of their books. And you know what? I have never, ever made a note for an interview. And the reason is, if they didn't write something impressive, okay, I didn't need notes. And I must tell you, you have a lot of really impressive stuff in your book. And I'm going to ask you a very tough question to begin with. First of all, you are the perfect person to be talking movies with 
because you're known as the guru and the godfather of audience research. You are the George Gallup, I guess, of, of movies, okay? You've helped turn some possibly mediocre films into magnificent films, and you got all kinds of major endorsements for this. And I just love talking about movies. I love movies, and I love great storytellers, and you've written a lot of great, great stories in your book. At the end of your book, Sherry Lansing, who was one of the really bright production heads at Paramount, said of your book, Kevin, make it a little more than a textbook. You recall her saying that? Oh, I sure do. It changed the trajectory of uh, what I was writing. Well, good for you and good for her. So, but you obviously have become enormously successful doing research for major directors, major actors, major producers, major studios about movies. So you obviously believe in research. And saying to you, you should make it a little more than a textbook. You did by telling your wonderful personal story, which elevates it. So the question I have to ask, did you do research on the title of your book? I did. I did. It's funny. The book was originally called, first of all, before I get into that, what an honor to be with you, John. I, I have been um, uh, watching and listening to you for many years, and I have always so respected your candor and your wit. Uh, and, you know, there's just the reading your book, the uh, Carol's the greatest reviews uh, <laughs> I've ever read in preparation for this interview because I am a researcher. So of course I have to research who's researching me. Uh, I uh, was reminded of so many of these of these uh, funny anecdotes and 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 your perspective and the fact that you were kind of similar to myself. Um, rogue in a lot of ways, like you were candid and honest and open and sometimes stood alone in your assessment. And I have such respect for that. And so um, it's an honor to be here with you. Okay. So then you, okay, because audienceology, yeah. that's a textbook title. Well, now there's no question that your book is going to end up in every library in the world and every book class, film class on the planet. But if I were at an airport and I saw something called audienceology, I think, oh, you know, because I'll tell you what moved me at the end of your book. You said something that very, very few people can say about their lives. You said because of your work that you do, you are in the happiest place in your life. So I thought, now, if I'm part of the research group that's doing research for the title of your book, I'd say, Kevin, that's got to be part of the title. Make it personal. Movies put me in my happy place, or I found my life at the movies, or the movies that I helped change changed my life. Well, it's funny. I'll tell you. I'll tell okay, you. Okay, tell me. So originally, the title of the book for years was Don't Kill the Messenger. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'd buy that in an instant. And I love that title. And, um, and I must say, Simon & Schuster... 
uh, said to me, we were in a staff meeting and somebody brought up the word audienceology. And we think that that is more of a, of a master brand of an Uber brand. And we would like to you to consider changing it. And I thought about it and I said, you know, when you have a title like of a movie that you've produced or whatever, you get so sort of in love with it. And so I was like, oh gosh, do I wanna do I wanna change this? And so what I did is I did, I researched it. I I actually um took the concept of the book and I did testing on it with the subtitle, which is how moviegoers shape the films we love. Right. And there was no difference in the scores between how to score in Hollywood and audienceology. In fact, audienceology had a little bit more appeal for the general uh, book reader. For the film aficionado, uh, Don't Kill the Messenger had a little bit more, but it didn't hurt the film aficionado. So that's why I ended up going with audienceology. Well, I'll tell you something. You should have followed your instinct because one of I, I, you're I, a film, I, film aficionado, so of course you're going to say that. Yeah, well, the thing is, you have a fabulous quote in there that uh, because I, there's so, I mean, there's so many things to talk to you about that are so good in your book, but you have a great quote from Ang Lee. Ang Lee is the Oscar-winning director of Brokeback Mountain and The Life of Pi. And what is it that Ang Lee said? He said um, Picasso never tested his films. <laughs> no, he never tested his paintings. Okay? His paintings, sorry. He never tested okay. his paintings. And I because... said to him, well, <laughs> Ang, if I said to him more than one occasion, I said, Ang, if, if a, your movie costs $2.10, of your own art supplies and you could put it in the back of your closet, go with God. But the studio just paid a hundred million dollars for the movie. Therefore uh, it's, it's, um, you know, uh, not a, um, a cheap endeavor. And also it's like, you know, other people get to weigh in on this very expensive decision. Uh, And so we, we, I, he's my favorite, well, I would say one of my five favorite film directors, living film directors. He's wonderful. And the reason I have such mixed feelings about this, I have always said that politics is best when it's democratic, but art is at its best when it's fascist. But I do know that, you know, because uh, Neil Simon was a close friend for years, and even a person like Neil, America's probably most successful playwright, Every time he wrote something, it didn't open on Broadway. It had to go out of town so the audience audiences could test it. And one of the th- and one of the things that staggered me also is that your knowledge of the history of films and audience testing long before you were born. So let's get to the part in your movie where you were born, because you seem to be a born researcher and a born creative talent. So where were you born? What were your parents like? And what were your first interests or dreams or jobs? Well, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, uh, in very close to where Barbara Streisand, Woody Allen, Neil Diamond, Neil Sedaka, uh, Eddie Murphy grew up uh, in Bensonhurst. Um, my, uh, my mom went to New Utrecht High School. My father went to Erasmus. For Brooklynites, that has meaning. 
Uh, I uh, had moved already after going to PS 200 to um, Jersey, to New Jersey, which was the country, you know, and uh, going out to Jersey was um, a step up when you were a boy from Brooklyn. My production company, by the way, is still called BBMG, which my mother came up with, which stands for Brooklyn Boy Makes Good. Isn't that wonderful? And, and she got it from Joan Rivers, actually, because Joan Rivers called her production company uh, PGHM, Please God Help Melissa. <laughs> yeah, and, that's a good book. And so my mom took that, and I remember telling Joan that story and, and uh, on a plane once, and she said, uh, don't let her take 10%. She's going <laughs> to want it. She's going to want it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, I loved her. I adored her. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, cut to um, growing up in East Brunswick, New Jersey, and was a child actor uh, at a pretty young age. I started in the theater and local theater and then... Um, was it was it television that prompted you to be an actor? No, it was a, it was it was the summer theater program in East Brunswick, where we had my first mentor, Elliot Tobinslag. He was an extraordinary impresario um, uh, and 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 theater guy in his bones, and he created this public theater where people could come for free uh, every day of the week in the summer. You worked like summer stock, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you rehearsed the children's show. And then on Friday, you put on the show. And it gave me a great, great experience. Feel He said when he when I was eight years old, nine years old, he would see that all the kids would be on stage and I would make it to the center of the stage. <laughs> find my light. You know? And uh, I don't know if you remember David Craig. No. David Craig was the guy who was married to Nancy Walker, who... Uh, taught all the acts, taught acts, actors singing, but he didn't teach the vocal quality. He taught how to perform a song. Everyone worked with him in Hollywood, everybody. And I had him towards the end of his life. Uh, I was lucky enough to, uh, to t- take class with him. And he would always talk about finding that center and finding your light. And I had that intuitively. I knew that. Uh, I knew I was born for that world. Uh, since I came out of my mother's womb, I was uh, meant to be in show business. And uh, it was in my blood. I, I can't explain it. And I think if I were if I were presumptuous, I would say that you were not that different, that we always knew we would land in a field that was in this profession, which is such a glorious profession. I still have a passion and love for it. Oh my gosh, I do too. But mine sort of came about by accident because I came from a very dysfunctional family. I read about your background. And so I survived by spending most of my time from the time I was six to 16 in the movie theater. And that was the reason I came to Hollywood because of Frank Capra and and Jimmy Stewart and I spent a year in England at a British repertory company. I traveled around the world. That wasn't an accident, John, that you did that is what I'm trying to say. Well, you know, you're not the only one who said that to me. Dean Wallace said that to me the the other day, but I want to get back to you. Okay. So anyway, it wasn't when I was about 13 or 14 is when I went into New York and I, I, I got a a manager, a talent manager, neighbors. 13. Yeah. I actually, 
ran away from home because my parents didn't want me to, I mean, for a day, my parents didn't <laughs> want me to do it. And, uh, and she signed me and, uh, and I started uh, auditioning for commercials and I had to go into New York. My parent, my mom particularly had a career and my father had a career. And so they didn't have a need means to bring me into New York to audition. But every now and then I did. And, and then I started getting stuff. And when I got my first professional job, uh, and I started doing TV commercials and I started doing a lot of them and I made my living um, doing that and actually saved for college and saved enough money for when I was 17. I opened my first business. Which OK, was- hang on a second. Now, you've become kind of successful doing commercials. So obviously you have proven to your mother that you can earn a living doing this and she's not taking 10 percent. What was did her attitude about her? 100 percent changed. She 100% did a complete flip and was my staunchest supporter, but it took a while. And, you know, to, and I was a singer and a dancer. So I was, I was studying dance in New York by then in my mid teens and, uh, and, uh, top dance and then taught, taught dance to kids. I had about a hundred students and four teachers and started jazz art studio in my hometown of East Brunswick when I was 17. Okay. Now you're 17 years of age. What actors inspired you the most? Well, uh, many, but more performers. Um, you know, as a, as a little gay man, uh, little gay boy, I, which I was not out then, uh, Barbara Streisand was my, uh, probably my strongest um, influence. Uh, and Broadway shows. My first Broadway show was Pippin and then A Chorus Line and Chicago, the original. Oh, my goodness. What a great. And so by by um, by kind of um, immersing myself in Broadway and just that's all I wanted to do is to go to uh, go to New York and be on the Broadway stage. And uh, so but movies I loved, but I loved theater the most. Uh, And then it was when I went to college at. At, at Mason Grove School of the Arts, I studied with William Esper. And he is one of the preeminent acting teachers in the world, was at the, he's deceased now, but he was a Sandy Meisner disciple. And uh, so I started working in, um, in the Meisner technique at uh, Rutgers, and I went to an acting conservatory. Little did I know that it was only a half an hour from my home, and it was one of the best acting schools in the country, along the lines of Juilliard and Yale, well, let's fast forward a little bit because now you're doing well in theater. You go to Meisner's theater, uh, Strasburg's theater. Yep. And yet, like Brando, who was theater, you end up in films. Well, how did you end up in films? Well, let's let's uh, let's talk about what the what the we glossed over, which was at 17 years old, um, starting my first business. Obviously, I had a tremendous entrepreneurial spirit and a real sense of business. So here I had a left and a right brain that were sort of in conflict and an insatiable curiosity. You made the comment that I was born to be a researcher. If you had told the young Kevin that I was going to be a researcher, I would say, oh, my God, I'm going to I'm going to kill myself now because (laughs) that sounded like the most boring thing I could possibly imagine. So I was so not into it, John, at all. I was so not into it. But my curiosity, along with the fact that I was a good businessman and I had tremendous creative instincts 
And I happened to be, if I, I was talented. I was very, very, a very, very good actor and a very, very good singer and dancer and triple threat. And so that was anybody who knew me from my high school years and before that said, he's, he's going to be a star, blah, 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 blah. And that was the, the trajectory I was going on. When I finally came to California with a contract I had at a little theater on the central coast of California, the great American melodrama in San Luis Obispo, near San Luis Obispo in Oceano, California, I uh, it was my ticket to California. That's why I took the job. I was there for a few months, four, four and a half, five months. And then came down to L.A. and I needed a part time job. All my residuals had had um, dried up. And so I took a job at a company called the National Research Group doing movie uh, testing. And I didn't know what that meant. And I started a little part time job that was about 35 years ago. And and from that, I began to get noticed, kind of like uh, Louis B. Mayer noticing a, a little a young, that young star in the in the chorus or what and said, and I was plucked out and given tasks that were more and more visible to clients, clients being the studios, clients being, you know, the heads of studios, production execs, distribution. But, but Tippin, part of your triple threat reminded me a lot of John Cassavetes, whom I knew well and had on a couple of shows. John was an excellent actor who decided to make films. Well, you obviously were an excellent actor, but you did something a lot of actors could not do. You made a couple of really good movies. How did that happen? I mean, you did a movie with John's wife, Gina Rollins. Well, Jenna's become one of uh, my husband and my best friend. We we are still extraordinarily close. Um, In fact, I lobbied for Jenna to get the honorary Oscar because I'm an Academy member. And uh, it took me seven years to really work that. Oh my and, gosh! Uh, so Jenna, of course, Jenna had us at her table at the at the uh, uh, at the Governor's Awards when she got that award. But she's um, she's an extra. She was someone. You said, "Who did I look up to?" She was someone I looked up to beyond. I used to dream about who I would want to who I would want to meet, you know. And of course, Brando was always up in the up there and. You know, and uh, what kind I, of- I, I, and you know, um, Laura Linney, who was an outstanding actress, wow. was also in your film. She won her first Emmy from from my movie. That's right. So I I want to get to the business of the movie in a minute, but I just want to inter- interject something. I think Jenna John's film was it Gloria, the gangster film. Gloria. Okay, my wife is one of. You know, I admire talent, I admire intellect, but above all, I admire character. My wife has more character than any human being I know. Wow. And she has, you know, before she she ran away with me when I was poor, every millionaire and even the owner of the Hungry Eye in San Francisco wanted to marry her. Sinatra was after her. Everybody was, she turned them all down. And I asked her why she went with me. And she says, because you're the only man who needed me. That's that's what it only is. Only man who what? Needed me. Okay. Other than that, she said, I'm just a Rolex in some rich guy's arm, which was a good <laughs> way of putting it. But she loved the movie Gloria. And she saw it. And she loved Cassavetti. She never once... Got got up to say hello to any famous personage, and and you can see from my wall that I met them all. We were at uh, Moose and Frank's, 
And we were sitting in the corner booth and John came in, John Cassavetes came in with uh, his manager. And they sat at the booth next to us. And my wife said to me, can I go and tell, and John had a, a sort of a yellowish pallor on his skin. I mean, he didn't look well. And for some reason, my wife, who had predicted when her father would die, said, you know, I am moved to want to go over and tell Mr. Cassavetes how much I love the movie. Gloria, do you mind if I go over? I said, my God, don't be silly. Well, John grabbed her and embraced her, and they just chatted and chatted and chatted. And a month and a half later, he died. Oof. Uh, just, I, but, but it was astonishing. Now, back to the the business of your your movie. You made a couple of successful films. Why did you not continue the way John did? Okay, so uh, this is the way it happened. So when I, uh, remember I said my obsession was theater. So I started a professional theater um, first as my segue into producing. And I, it was called Central Coast Repertory. It was back in San Luis Obispo. It was an equity theater that was sort of, I think it was the only full equity theater between San Francisco and Los Angeles. And I started it with my partner from that first theater that I came to <laughs> California with. She was a mentor to me as well, a theater. I had always great mentors, um, a theater mentor. And she was a great producer, Annette, Annette Carlin, and taught me a lot. And when I worked in the theater, it was, a, it was um, how do I say this? It was tough because, you know, it's not a financially viable profession unless you have backers and you have grants and it's just really tough. So I was really pushing that, that business uphill at the same time I was working as a hyphenate, you know, as a market researcher doing focus groups at that point for national research group. And so I knew so many folks and I said, you know what, why am I killing myself here? Why don't I leverage those relationships and produce movies? And so I started uh, with Wild Iris, which is the one you're referring to with Jenna and and Laura and Emile Hirsch also and others, great actors in it. Uh, but what we did is um, it started as a reading of a of a theatrical play called Bluebird Bridals at my theater. And from that, it evolved to Black Iris and then it evolved to Wild Iris. And again, uh, it took 11 and a half years to get that made. Oh my starting God. From the theater. So that was my segue. During that time, I made about four or five other movies for Lifetime. And I learned, kind of got my master's degree in producing. And that's how I moved into production. So it was really uh, a sense of uh, uh, I wanted to segue and get more financially successful and do things that meant something to me. And to be honest, the Lifetime movies didn't have that meaning for me, but Wild Iris certainly did. And uh, that would have been my trajectory. Cut to the Emmys in 2002. We nom- were nominated for three. We won one. And uh, and uh, I was on my way to saying, I'm going to produce now, just like you said, in the, in the way that um, a John or any other filmmaker might have gone. However, at the same time, at National Research Group, the heads of the company who had a monopoly on market research at that time, who did all the testing for all the studios, were leaving. And so it created the perfect storm. 
And they would never have allowed a George Gallup who actually tried to come back into Hollywood to make that. Wow. Because they wanted to keep that monopoly. In any event, at that point, I said, you know what? This is an opportunity that I have because I am the guy that most people associate with their, doing their discussion groups, doing their focus groups, come to rely on. I said, this would be crazy for me not to seize this opportunity. So I decided for the first time in my life to become single focused. I'd never done that. I was a, an actor and a producer. I was a market researcher and a producer. I was a market researcher and actor. Whatever it was, I was continuing as a hyphenate. And I said, I'm going to put all my energy and I'm just going to test the waters and see what happens. Well, the moment I did, I got calls from everyone who wanted to be in the business and wanted to hire me. And I accepted a job with a woman called Shelley Zalis, who was starting an online research company. And I thought that was the future. And that's where I chose to go and start my screening division, my movie screening division, called a company called OTX. Within... A year, I blew my numbers away and they thought I sandbagged the numbers because <laughs> everyone stood by me. It was incredible. And I, and within um, seven years, while I left, I, I, I captured about 60% of the entire market. And so I- Okay, started, what I want to get to, yeah. what was, because you have so many fabulous stories to tell about <laughs> the movies you're involved in, what was the very first- movie where you may have had a very strong influence and perhaps changing an ending or changing something about it that turned it from, you know, a non-moneymaker to a moneymaker. I remember working, one of my first movies was Young Guns. Uh, Young Guns with, um, it, was a, it was a movie that Joe Roth produced. Um, God, it was, again, 30 some odd years ago. Uh, that was a uh, one that I felt very proud of working on and uh, Lost Boys. Uh, well, how did you change Young Guns? What I mean, well, I ha- I have to tell you, I will. I could tell you, I can't remember what I did on those movies. There's oh, many okay. movies I can tell you about, but back then, um, I didn't have the. How do you say it? The I didn't have the, um, the, uh, what's the word? The 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 gravity uh, of putting myself out there where I was associated with the success, if you will. In other words, I wasn't as confident or uh, I relied really just on the research itself. It wasn't until about 10 years after that, 15 years after that, that I really became um, a uh, uh, kind of more of an expert, if you will, in, the, in, in what I did. And it was, it was interesting. Peter Chernin, do you know who P- Peter, of course, yes. ran Fox? Yes. Peter was running Fox and he, he, he saw me at a screening once and uh, I really liked the guy. He was terrific. And I said, I said to him, uh, or he said to me, uh, Kevin, what do you want to do? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you're doing this, which is, which is great, but do you, is there another, is there a bigger aspiration or something? And I said, as a matter of fact, I'd like to um, be a producer um, on the, on the, on the lot or on a lot and, uh, and perhaps even be a production executive. And he said, I was wondering if you'd ever be, a pro- come see me to, uh, Monday 
call me on Monday. But we set a meeting up. I went in and he basically said, I want you to meet all the heads of the divisions. And I want, I knew them all. And, um, and he took a, he said, he said to me something very interesting in the meeting. He said, I, I'm figuring that even if you were a total dolt, you have to have absorbed so much by the sheer <laughs> numbers of movies that you've tested that you have to be, um, you know, smart about how to fix them. And it dawned on me that I really had a skill that nobody else really possessed based on just the sheer numbers. I have passed my, I think I may be up to 7,000 movies now. That well, I, I'm going to get to one specifically that I'm well yeah. aware of, and you mentioned in your book, but one of the things that really surprised and impressed me uh, and informed me was your knowledge of the history of research, because I was stunned, I know. first of all, about Wuthering Heights, uh, and then I was even more stunned to read that there was any such thing as a testing for Gone with the Wind. Did you ever read Ben Hecht's autobiography, A Child of the Century? No, I didn't. I didn't. Well, uh, his, 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 it is by far the second best book ever written about I'm anybody. writing it right now. A Child of the Century, by far the second best book ever written about anybody in show business. He's wow. invented the gangster film. And um, by far, and if you're thinking about, well, what's the first best book? It's mine. It's called Your Mother's Not a Virgin. But Ben Hecht was the only fan letter I ever wrote in my life. I'm a male boy at Paramount Studios. I'm 17 years of age, and I go across the street to the the shop, and I see a book called The Child of the Century, Ben Hecht. Now, I think it's Hecht Hill Lancaster, and I'm anxious to learn everything about movies. And here's the guy who invented not only the gangster movies, he wrote Front Page uh, with Charles MacArthur, which became his girl Friday with Terry Grant, Roswell and Russell, great film. But he told the inside story of Gone with the Wind, that Daryl Sa- uh, David O. Selznick had shut it down and thrown it away and called Ben Hecht in to rewrite the entire screenplay and Hecht had never even read Margaret Mitchell's book. Oh, heaven. And he, and he said, well, hold it. Don't you have a, a, a researcher here who writes a resume of it? And Selznick said, yeah, uh, 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 yeah, but it's only 30 pages. <laughs> and Hecht said, give me the 30 pages. And he and uh, and David spent 12 days eating bananas and wrote the entire script. And Hecht never. <laughs> now, look, at you take Gone with the Wind world's greatest bestseller, who would research. I was stunned to read the stuff. So tell us about how they bootlegged their research Gone with the Wind. Well, it was a great, by the way, this story came from Samuel Goldwyn Jr. before he passed away. And he was great friends, of course, with David Oselznick and Irene and heard it from their mouth. So this is not... um, I suppose you might say it's hearsay, but not really hearsay. It's really pretty, pretty first, first person or first party, you know. You know, the parallel, I just want to say, between Gone with the Wind and Titanic, when we tested both of those. Oh, wow. Had a very similar trajectory. There was so much hype. It's hard, hard to imagine unless you think about Titanic, because we don't know in 1939 what that was was like. Um, 
but people were so anticipating who was going to be Scarlett O'Hara, who was right. going to be Rhett Butler. They kind of knew Rhett, but they didn't know that Scarlett, and you know, it was going to be Betty Davis or Paulette Goddard or whomever it was going to be. And so Titanic was the same way. There were cost overruns. The movie was going to cost $250 million at least. And it was just, uh, you know, it was going to take down the studio or it was going to be, have to be a massive success. But if it was this long in the can, can, how long, how good could it really be? So it was very, very similar. In Gone with the Wind, the press was, was hovering around, um, around uh, Metro and David O. Selznick studio, you know, the Selznick studio down in Culver. And it wasn't um, until the moment they were going to screen it where they actually brought two or three caravans of cars out of the studio because they got a a leak Uh that they were screening it somewhere, but they didn't know where. And so three caravans of cars went out with three, I don't know, hats or whatever of executives. And they went in three different places, three different areas. So the press didn't know who to follow. (laughs) They finally arrived. I believe it was Riverside. Do you remember? Yes, um, Riverside. Riverside San Bernardino. San Bernardino. They went out there. And they screened it. People thought they were going to see some name your movie, total ruse. And it wasn't until the da-da-da-da came up (laughs) that people were stunned. Rumor had it that they locked the doors of the lobby, of the theater entrance. But of course, they didn't. But... uh, David David and Irene stood in the back by the doors and watched and everybody go in and out. So they were, you know, today we have security, major security. But then we didn't, they didn't have security, but they stood there and made sure, and people were running if they had to go to the bathroom and running back. And they knew that it was um, going to- But but was there anything about that screening that had David change the film? Now you brought up the business of Titanic which was a major monster hit. The boat sinks at the end. It's a great love story. What kind of research did you do okay. to help improve that film? Well, so so uh, that, by the way, just it's fun to just re- recount this. So Tom Sherrick was the, uh, was the big cheese at, at Fox, uh, one of the big cheeses there. And he his job was essentially to protect the logo that was his he used to describe that as his job and he was a dear friend and and he uh orchestrated us all going to minneapolis to do it he wanted to go to some place that was a little bit cooler because it was the summer than it would be you don't want to see titanic with icebergs in the middle of the desert you know so we went to minneapolis no one we didn't know what we were seeing or where we were going it wasn't until i got there i didn't know myself that we thought we were seeing great expectations at the time that was coming out. And that was what we were all, but everyone was like, we can't be doing this. Jim Cameron is in the theater and he's doing, working on the lights with trying to, so people could fill out their cards and just a genius of a man and very uh, involved in every aspect of everything. 
when that logo came on with the with the water and people said were they thought it was a trailer at first they couldn't believe it it was just insanity so what we learned was that i mean the cheers were crazy the end of the movie was uh not a dry eye in the house and yet um when i probed some of the pace or length issues you know it was a long movie yes and it was up to me to try to find out where in particular there were um, places that could be truncated. And so one of them that I recall, which I say in the book, is uh, the chase with Billy Zane going after um, both of them who have the necklace. Yes. And the chase ensues and they're going around the boat. And uh, that chase scene took too long for audiences. And so Jim um, trimmed that. Wow. As far as I can tell, it's about the only change because it was such um, the perfect picture out of the gate. Sometimes that happens. Rarely it happens where you... Now, even though it's a short change, you weren't shortchanged in your fee for being involved in that film. Now I get to a movie. Yeah, but sometimes, John, sometimes, pardon me, sometimes it's the validation that's as much of the, you know, remember. I, ah, uh, yes. And I, remember, I am an artist first, which I think has separated me in my field because I'm not a report card giver. I'm not a, um, a, a guy who comes out with the suit and the thing and I go, I mean, I wear a suit, but I don't come out with my checklist and go. <laughs> I come out and I speak to these people that I understand their baby is now going before the audience for the first time. And they're finally, they're going to get the reaction. People come in to want to love a movie. They don't want anything other than wanting to love it. And they, and, and I have to gently and, and delicately and, and, and um, compassionately talk about what issues might arise. Well, and you so- do that magnificently in a number of stories, but one of them, involved me personally when I was a critic and I devoured this chapter in your book and it's about basic instinct. Okay. Basic instinct, Glenn Close and Michael Douglas. No, uh, not that, not basic instinct. Um, fatal attraction. attraction. Yeah. Fatal attraction, not ba- fatal attraction. That was it. I was a critic at the time and I took my wife to see uh, the film. I like to take her of my son often when I went to the, to the movies to get this, this sort of feedback from them. There is a scene in the kitchen near the end oh, yeah. where Michael Douglas grabs the knife. Now, I'm a show-off, okay? So I turn to my wife and I say, I'm going to ruin this movie for you, but what's going to happen? <laughs> He's going to be so angry. She's going to kill herself. He's going to be arrested because his fingerprints are on the knife, and he's going to be convicted of murder, and that's how the movie's going to end. And then the movie continues, and all of a sudden, it's not it's Ann Archer, I guess, getting revenge on Glenn. And I was I was so upset at that. Now I didn't mention that in my review, but I deliberately got on the phone and called Sherry Lansing, and I said, and she talked to me often. I just loved talking to that lady. She was so smart. I said, "Hold it! Did you guys change the ending of that movie?" And she detailed how they researched it and they changed the ending. 
And I said, well, you better take out that close-up of the knife. That's how we ended the, the conversation. And now I read you were one of the principals in oh, yeah. shaping that film. So tell us that. Oh, story. that is one of the classic research stories. And it's so, you have to hear it rather than read it to understand how. Oh, much- no, I loved reading it. You write well. So here, here's the, here's the, uh, oh, and I must acknowledge my co-writer, Darlene Heyman, before this interview is over. So uh, she's terrific. She's one of the analysts that I've worked with and a dear friend for years at my company and, and, uh, and uh, helped me, of course, navigate this, this, this beast. So Fatal Attraction was a good movie. It was maybe a very good movie. Uh until the end. And audiences were very engaged with Glenn's character, Alex, I think her name was, and, uh, and Michael's character, and everyone could relate to, oh my God, what if? <laughs> you know, and when the ending happened, and originally the ending was uh, Glenn Close uh, taking her own life, there was l- an energy the air left the movie theater you could physically feel it it was like huh you got brought me all the way up here and now you're giving me that so when we handed out the cards people were writing 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 and then when we did the focus group the very first focus group how many liked the movie everyone raised their hand how many rated it excellent maybe five people six people Very good, maybe nine people, you know, good. No one said fair or poor, but they just had the winds taken out of their sails. Why didn't you rate it higher? Which is a question I often ask. Why didn't you give it the excellent? Unanimously, the ending. What was it about the ending? Well, (laughs) what happened? She gets out. He, He gets off. No vindication. She's the victor. That's crazy. So we go to Seattle, I believe, Atlanta. We tested it in same exact story. It talks about how moviegoers, the universality of, of moviegoers around the country are, were and are. And so finally, we reconvened. We used to reconvene in Sherry's office after screenings. It was awfully fun. It's a time that I, I miss because... She's probably the woman I most admire in the entire movie business. Um, I'm beyond crazy about her for so many reasons. But watching her navigate a postmortem, we used to call them, uh, movies, was artful. And, uh, and she understood filmmaking so well. And she said, we are not giving them what we need to give them. You know, we have to, we have to rethink this. And the rethink was, we've got to get the wife, Ann Archer, involved. <laughs> and can I curse here? And I'm not allowed. Oh, to- oh yeah, absolutely. You're oh, yeah. Well, we kill the bitch is what we they were all saying. She's got to kill the bitch, which is what they all were. Those were the cards would say that, and worse than that. And so they devised this idea with the bathtub, Glenn coming in. And I'll tell you, they didn't want to do it. 
Glenn didn't want to do it. The director didn't want to do it. Anne was up for it. Um, Michael Douglas was up for it because Michael was a producer as well, I believe on it. So yeah. he understood the, so they had to sell it in to both of those guys that to, to Glenn and, and Adrian uh, Lynn, which line, which was, um, which was not an easy task, but they did it. They reshot it. We go to test it. John, in my career up to that point, I have never seen a turnaround. The audience literally, <gasps> it was visceral. It was right. It was the perfect. They, they cheered. At they the end cheered. Of the yes, they did. They, the scores came up 30 points. Now, how many rated it excellent? I want to say out of the 20 people in my focus group, 17 hands or something like that. The movie, this is the difference though. Because of that change, which is now known as the Fatal Attraction ending, because yes. it was so perfectly crafted. Because of that, the movie would have done, I don't know, $50 million, you know, domestically or whatever it would have, because it was a, it was a good to very good movie. But because of that change, it it literally elevated the film into the stratosphere of a hit. Uh, I have a number of those stories throughout my career. Oh, are you, th your book is filled with them. And I must tell you, I would have called your book, not Audienceology. I don't Kill the Messenger. No, I would have called it Kill the Bitch. <laughs> kill, kill the, the Bitch. bitch. I, you know, but, but uh, he, the other thing about Don't Kill the Messenger is, and this is where I said originally why I felt you and I have a really uh, our kindred spirits is I come out and I, I cannot be a sycophant. I just can't be. I have to be the guy in the room telling the truth. Well, that's, and, why, that's why they hire you. Oh, I have learned that. I'll tell you a fun story. This is go a good ahead. story. This is a good story. This is tells you exactly what my role is. Okay. This was a movie I was testing maybe um, 15 years ago. Uh, and it was, um, it was a very um, average movie by a great director, very big commercial director. The movie was a misstep, really. It was a misstep in casting. It was a misstep in finding its target audience of young girls. And it was really a romantic comedy that didn't have a lot of romance in it. And it didn't have a tremendous amount of comedy in it. Uh, but it was a you know, the guy never makes bad movies, but the ending really disappointed people. Now, in a movie, as you know, John, you have to have at least marketability or playability, but you can't not have both. Meaning, sometimes you can have a crappy movie or a challenged movie, but it has such a great idea that despite itself, it still goes on and becomes successful, right? We can all name things mm -hmm. like that. We may not like them, but the audience devours them. Or you could have a movie that plays super well, but nobody really wants to see. But to not have either of them, I've never seen ever in my career a movie become successful. We do a move, we do this movie, we test it, we test it twice, we test it three times, and we would wait for an hour, hour and a half afterwards to talk back and forth, and maybe they'll coming after my audience and saying your audience was wrong and blah, and finally, after this third or fourth screening and an hour into it, and I wanted to get home to eat dinner at 11 o'clock at night or whatever the hell it was, I said, 
Guys, in all due respect, you cannot have no playability. You cannot have mark, no markability and expect to succeed. The only thing you can do, because you can't reinvent the DNA of the movie, is to change your ending. You've got to reshoot your ending. Hopefully, we can bring the scores up 10 or 15 points, and that way you'll at least have a playable movie. Does that make sense to you, John, so yeah. far? Okay. Yes. All right. So they all were kind of stunned that I said it, but on the way home, I called the head of the studio in my car. He was with his wife, and I said, um, I'm sorry I was so... So I hope I didn't overstep. Oh, no, it needed to be said. Thank you. Okay. Next day, morning, I get up. I was uneasy. I called the director on his cell phone. Uh, and I just said, I just want to explain what I meant so you understand. So because I was a little bit, very, uh, you know, harsh, potentially. Next thing I know, two hours later, I called. The, he wants you off the picture. He doesn't want you on the picture anymore. I said, oh, Okay crushed my ego, but you know, I'm a big boy. I said, okay, well, that's a shame. He says, by the way, did you tell that said filmmaker that you, that his movie wasn't playable or marketable? I said, uh-huh. Okay. Uh, well, everything's fine with the studio. It's just that two days, three days later, I go to another screening with the same studio head who I'd spoken to in the car. He brought me aside and said, I said, I'm so sorry that this, you know, that he, how dare you say that? I couldn't believe you did. I don't say that to him. You said that. To, I said, did we not have this conversation already in the, and it was like, as if it never took place. He needed to say that to me. And I went, uh, I'm, I feel terrible. I'm really, really sorry. About a week later, I'm heading up to Yosemite to do a, uh, to do, go to a wedding. Oh, my friends were renewing their vows. And on the way to the wedding, the head, that, the head of that studio, the Uber boss calls me up and says, Kevin, we have a movie we're testing next week. It's three hours long. We let the director go off and cut it. He took two to three months. It's now three hours and five minutes. This is up, for, up to you. You've got to do this. He's not going to listen to anyone. You've got to, you know, really pound it home. The next moment, the next call is the person who said, how dare I do that? Who said, Kevin, you've got to da, 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 and said the exact same thing. At that moment, it was a huge light bulb that went off saying they're hiring me to be that sacrificial lamb. They're hiring me to be the guy that they're putting in the the canary in the coal mine there and to and to relay it to them and to tell them that because they themselves couldn't even do it does that make sense yes and it was a really epiphany for me as a professional and you know i'm a guy who likes to be liked by everyone i'm a guy who uh doesn't like confrontation and yet so much of my job is not so much confrontation but it's about giving the truth unfettered truth and I do that through the audience. I want to get to, and uh, we get, you gave uh, Fatal Attraction a happy ending. This is an unhappy ending that you're involved with, but it's the only way that you could have ended the film, and that's Thelma and Louise. Oh, was there to be a different kind of ending? Because the ending is fabulous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a different ending because what they were doing in Thelma and Louise was 
they continued, they gave the audience the impression that they didn't, that they survived, that they did, the audience didn't understand that it was sort of ephemeral or in their minds or in the, you know, and so they wanted more clarity and definitive, a definitive nature that when those women went over that, um, that uh, cliff, that uh, they were gone. Yeah, but the law enforcement officers were trying to shoot them and they were going to be arrested for homicide. Oh, no, no one argued that that was the right decision. What the wrong decision was, was that after they went over, that there was a dreamy sequence as if they were were in heaven. Oh, I see. Still driving. So people actually thought that that might have been them surviving and not knowing that it was a metaphor well, I, I, I must tell you, Kevin, I'm in heaven just talking to you. You and I could talk movies forever and ever. Forever. And, and the time has gone by. So I need to ask you, in a couple of months, would you please come back? Because I have a dozen other film stories in your wonderful book uh, that I would like to be able to get to. And- well, you are spectacular, John. Uh, and uh, And again... I have to just say, if I may, and, I, and, and, and um, I guess I'm plugging Carol's book, but, you know, your review of Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> was, I mean, I literally fell out of my seat uh, while I was reading it. And, um, and I read that I was in Santa Barbara. We were in Santa Barbara. And I was literally on a, um, like on a, on a uh, you know, chaise. And I rolled, like I rolled, and people were looking at me like, what's so funny? Uh, and then that, there was that wonderful quote. It, you, you quoted it twice about remakes. Oh, the Fred Allen line. Oh, my God. Tell everyone. That is the greatest line ever. I, I'm stealing it, but. Well, you're not stealing it. It's public because Fred Allen said it in, 19, in the 1940s on his radio show. You know, he and Jack Benny at two of the most popular radio shows. I'm a kid. I loved them. And I remember him saying that Hollywood is a land of termites where they keep chewing, because there's so many remakes, they keep chewing on their own backlog. I mean, that is so brilliant. It is so brilliant. It is. It is. And I can't tell you, I've worked on so many remakes and sequels. (laughs) And and the the remakes in particular, it's so yeah, rare. I know because there's a chapter in here that uses the F word about all, all the remakes. You must promise me Absolutely. that you'll come back in a couple of months. And you know what? Uh, we're, we're pre-recording this, uh, but I would like you to come back on a Saturday night when we're live because people will just flood the phones to be able to talk to somebody. Oh, marvelous! As smart as you, you got a deal. You got a deal. You got okay, a deal. Okay, and thank you so much. And Thank and, and oh my God, you're just terrific. You have a great rest of the day. Thank you, John. God bless. And I really uh, loved spending time with you. Welcome to Talking Movies. Doug, how are you today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you, John. Did you know that this is show number eight and eight in numerology, in case you didn't know it, means money. Now, I don't know if our guest has a lot of that, but he has helped make a bunch of it. 
for bunches of very famous directors and producers and writers and studios. Uh, most people haven't even heard of them, but everyone in the moving making business not only knows of them, but they are they hire them. He is the leading audience researcher for producers, directors, and writers and actors in the entire business. What happens if they make a movie, they turn it over to him, he screens it for a private audience, and then he makes suggestions on how to improve the movie and therefore improve their product and the profits. And he has told a lot of these amazing stories and his stories in this book with the unusual title, Audienceology. And now here he is in person, Kevin Getz, to tell us his story and some of those. The other day, I went to see, for the third time, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. And in the film, the spacecraft carrying the astronauts to outer space is operated by a computer, and the computer's called HAL. Now, HAL reads lips, uh, he reads material, he can sing, he can talk, and he's intelligent, which means he's almost human. Because uh, if he weren't too intelligent, the chances are he would be human. And the machine is trying to destroy the astronauts. And just at the time when it looked like the astronaut would overcome the machine, the projector broke down. So we had to take a break. And during the intermission, I saw a very weird sight. I saw 40 people lined up very quietly, waiting to be fed by a Coke machine. And it suddenly occurred to me that our lives are really being literally taken over by machines. I mean, for example, we pay $3,000 for a machine to drive around in, but it doesn't move unless you get constant transfusion at 38 cents a gallon from another little machine. And when you're driving your big machine in the street and you want to park it, you can't park it unless you feed a dime every hour to a little machine on the sidewalk. <laughs> now, if you don't get that dime into that little machine, it sticks out a little red tongue saying it's been violated. <laughs> And that little red signal attracts another machine that's black and white and big with a red signal on it. And that big black-white machine drives over to your machine and finds you $15 for not putting a dime into that little machine. <laughs> to show you how smart the little machine is, if it's not working, it won't tell you. It'll still take the dime. I mean, it doesn't stick out a little yellow tongue to say that it's not working. And so that the big black-and-white machine won't be attracted by that, what you have to do is you have to leave it a note. And while you're writing the note, the pen malfunctions. Now, you cannot leave that little machine alone on the street for an hour. But if you should pass out from the frustration, you could lie there all day long. Now, it occurs to me that with machines and computers taking over our lives the way that they have been, as people, we've got to learn to communicate better with one another. Because as human beings, because as human beings, because as human beings, because as human beings.